In June, Robert Gottlieb, the man who has been the final editor of all of Robert Caro's books, wrote an essay in the New York Times. The focus was on John Gunther and the 900-page book he wrote 75 years ago called Inside USA. In Gottlieb's opinion, Gunther was, quote, probably the best reporter America ever had, unquote. We wanted to find out more about this publishing success story, so we called Canadian freelance writer Ken Cuthbertson to talk with him about his 1992 book called Inside, colon, the biography of John Gunther. Ken Cuthbertson, you wrote a book back in 1992 called Inside, colon, the biography of John Gunther. Why were you interested in him? Why was I interested in John Gunther? That's an excellent question. And let me tell you the reason. I'll try and keep it uh, keep it short. I was a journalism student at Western University here in Canada. And um, one of my uh, print instructors was a, a guy by the name of Alistair Curley Hunter. Alistair Curley Hunter was, uh, I'll give you a mental uh, image of him. He was, a, he was a big shambling guy with a bald head. And he had spoke with a bit of a lisp. And he was... Um, I guess Mr. He looked like Mr. Clean, but he had a John Wayne way to him, and he, he would pound his his uh, hand, his fist into the palm of his other hand, and he'd say, "If you want to learn to write, read John Gunther, and you gotta think commercial." And so I, I left the journalism school with that in mind, and and uh, worked as a journalist for a number of years. And about ten years after that, I I picked up a Gunther book. Uh, I think it was uh, Inside USA, as a matter of fact, and I started to read it, and I thought, well. Uh, Curly Hunter was really right about this Gunther guy. He's, he's, he is a terrific writer. So um, that was what sparked my interest, and I started doing some research. It took me about five years because I was uh, working full-time, and so I would get up each morning at 5 o'clock uh, to write for a couple of hours before I went to the office, and I did my research uh, purely on spec. I, I didn't have a contract or anything with, uh, with a publisher, but I uh, wrote a biography of Gunther, and uh, he's an amazing guy. He was an amazing man, um, and uh, he was... Somebody who uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say most Americans probably don't know anything about anymore. He's, he's virtually forgotten. But um, let me tell you what Eric Severide, a distinguished CBS foreign correspondent, said about him. He, he knew Gunther well and at his obituary. He said that Gunther was the leader in that original extraordinary band of American journalists, some with Midwest hayseeds still in their hair, scholars and linguists who rampaged through Europe in the 20s and 30s, and somehow ended up on a first-name basis with kings and bartenders. More than diplomats or politicians, it was they who told America what was happening and what was going to happen in the civilization of the West. That was, in a nutshell, who Gunther was. Chicago-born, born in 1901, lived an extraordinary life, died uh, prematurely, really, of liver cancer uh, in um, May of uh, 1970. And um, he was the author of 20-some-odd books, including, I think, seven seven or eight, depending on how you count them, in uh, his signature series, which was the Inside Books. And that was uh, the book I mentioned, Inside USA, but there were others in the Inside series that uh, all were international bestsellers. What got us interested in calling you and asking you about uh, John Gunther was a piece in the New York Times by Bob Gottlieb uh, right. in, in June and celebrating almost 75 years of the Inside USA book. But in his piece... He says he was a reporter, probably the best America ever had. What's your reaction to that statement? 
Well, I mean, that's a bit of a uh, bit of hyperbole there. I, I, Gunther was an extraordinary reporter. I'm not sure he was the best America ever had, but Gunther was. Um, uh, as I mentioned to you, Curly Hunter, my my journalism print journalism instructor, told me that um, if you want to learn to write, uh, listen or read Gunther and think commercial. And Gunther thought commercially in, in that in that sense, something a lot of the other journalists from his era didn't. And there were some really superb journalists. Uh, I mean, his, his contemporaries were people like H.R. Knickerbocker and Dorothy Thompson, Vincent Sheehan. Um, these were ex- all extraordinary journalists, but Gunther was bright enough to be um, to look at the market. He knew who, who he was writing for. He was writing for the average person in the United States. And, and in, the, in the 20s and 30s, when he really cut his teeth, uh, America was a, a changing country. Um, I mean, you're, not, you're not old enough to remember it, nor am I, but um, that was the era before, uh, really before, even before radio. In the 20s, it was just, radio was just getting started. In the 30s, it became big. But it was, um, it was a country that was, uh, had come out of World War I, uh, suddenly with a, a bit broader sense of horizon. And uh, Americans, as you know, in the in the 20s, uh, the whole thing about the lost generation going off to Europe to rediscover themselves, and there was a sort of a, um, a growth in um, uh, Americans' view of the world, uh, if you will, and they were people were hungry for information. So hence the the, um, the rise of publications like Reader's Digest, which was sort of the everyman view of the world, uh, interesting material presented in a way that w- was accessible to people. You know, it was also the era of uh, things like Encyclopedia Britannica. And um, Gunther tapped into all that because he was sort of an everyman himself, but he was an acute observer of, of uh, humanity. He, he was a terrific writer, and as I said, he had that sense of what was commercial and what would sell. So he was able to write things in a way, a complex subject. He could take a complex subject and uh, write it in such a way that the average person could understand it. And as I said, there was a, there was a market for that in his, his time when he was coming of age. 1936 was his big breakthrough, and perhaps we'll, we can talk about that a little later, but um, uh, it was his book Inside Europe uh, pan, uh, channeled into that, funneled that sort of information uh, in a way that made it accessible and um, really uh, attracted people to it so that they would buy his books. And that was the secret to his success. Gottlieb wrote about uh, Inside USA, which was published in 1947. Uh, Before we come back to John Gunther, but uh, tell us about your background. Where do we find you today and where are you from originally? Originally, I'm from where I ended up right now, which is uh, Kingston, Ontario, a Canadian. Isn't it curious that a Canadian is writing about American topics? Uh, Gunther's not the first uh, uh, American I've written about. I've also written about Emily Hahn. a very eminent uh, New Yorker writer uh, was with the magazine for 69 years, uh, an, an amazing woman. Um, I also have written a biography of uh, William L. Shire, uh, which is um, called The Complex Fate, William L. Shire and the American Century. And uh, that was, in essence, uh, in many ways, uh, a follow-up to the Gunther book, because Gunther was, um, Gunther was king during the, uh, the print era, uh, when uh, print was, was uh, the golden age, really, of, of uh, Foreign correspondence and, and print in the United States, sort of from the from the twenties into the early thirties, and then radio takes over. And Shire is one of the uh, one of the uh, the key figures in that era. He's he's virtually forgotten today too. Although his book Rise and Fall of the Third Reich is still in print, um, what fifty years, sixty years almost after it was was published. And Shire was uh, the man who taught Edward R. Murrow to be a journalist. So 
interesting character. But back and, to what I was did you, uh, telling did, you originally was that, uh, sorry? No, I just wanted to ask you, did Morley Safer write that uh, book on Shire with you? Uh, no, he did a foreword for me. Oh, okay. Morley was yeah. a, a Canadian, and uh, when I contacted him, he was thrilled uh, to write the foreword for me. I was, uh, i got to be honest and tell you, I was a little bit intimidated when he sent me the foreword that he'd written, and he said, what do you think of it? And I thought, oh, uh, well, um, how do I criticize it? How do I offer him comment? And uh, when I did, uh, Morley uh, got back to me and said, you're absolutely right. And, you know, he let me edit. So I was I was really humbled, uh, taken aback that he would let me do this. But uh, well, if you go to uh, the, uh, John Gunther and the books that he published, and I've got a list here yeah. I'm looking at, and you mentioned Inside Europe when he was 35 years old. In his last book, uh, he was 66, Inside South America, and Inside Africa, and Inside Russia, Inside Europe. But I got online, got on, I happen to have, for some reason or other, a copy of uh, Inside USA in my own library, uh, beat yeah. up. But I got online in Amazon. You can buy one there for $890 hardback <laughs> or $902 paperback. What's that all so about? How many did you buy? I didn't buy any. I had buy? one. Somehow I got one years ago. <laughs> I know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, well, you know, Gunther, that was the other thing about Gunther uh, that prompted me to write about him was because if you go to a garage sale quite often or, uh, you know, you go to an auction house or you go to a used, uh, uh, used furniture store or whatever, you'll see cartons of books. And you look through them, and invariably you'll find some of Gunther's books because, um, I mean, his books sold in the millions, literally. They were translated into 90 languages around the world. Uh, you know, and um, if, if you look at back, uh, back in his day uh, how uh, extensive his reach was, um, there was a writer for The New Yorker named um, Richard Rovere who, who said that, uh, and i got a quote right here on my desk, it's, uh, Gunther occupied an exalted position alongside Franklin D. Roosevelt, and Charles Lindbergh as, quote, one of the half dozen or so authentic international celebrities of his era. So, you know, um, Harry Truman had a copy of uh, one of Gunther's books, Inside Asia, on his desk when he broadcast his VJ Day speech in 45. Richard Nixon went to uh, Moscow in 1958 to uh, confer with Soviet leaders, and he had with him in his, uh, in his uh, briefcase uh, a copy of Gunther's book, Inside Russia Today. Uh, you know, so... Gunther certainly had um, uh, certainly had a wide readership, and um, he was somebody who was influential in his day, very influential. On page 915 of his Inside USA, I'm going to read you what he says about politicians and ask you to, uh, uh, to tell us what you think of that. He, he says, politicians in America rise predominantly from what used to be called, quote, the lower middle class, unquote. Most are self-made men. As we know from dozens of examples with careers behind them and everything from dentistry to butter and eggs, most depend on their political jobs for a livelihood and most have little time, inclination or opportunity for adult education. Hence, the dominating qualities of so many are greed, vulgarity, attention to special interest, avarice and selfishness. Is that fair? <laughs> well, uh it's certainly provocative, isn't it? Um, as you were reading it, uh, I was I was thinking that um, it, it's a measure of how much times have changed. Um, we we could go on to some length about this, but it's a measure of how much times have changed now. That the um, seems to be the complaint against a lot of politicians in Washington and in, indeed here in Canada, where I live, is that they're career politicians. They're these are people who um, are are born and raised. It seems to be in government or to be in government service, 
and um, they don't really have much experience in, in the real world or in life. You know, and if you look at uh, what happened in the United States when Donald Trump was, was elected, certainly that was um, one of the messages that he put forward, that he was, quote-unquote, an outsider. Um, and politicians, you know, back in, in uh, Gunther's day, uh, perhaps they weren't as well-versed, uh, and uh, they did come from the lower middle class. As he said, they were self-made men. Now the, the shoe seems to be on the other foot that uh, politicians too often seem to be, or they, they tend to be, and I guess they really are, uh, people who are career politicians. That, that's all they've ever known, and you have to wonder sometimes, scratch your head and wonder if these people have lived in the real world. So um, it's, a, it's an interesting quote that you chose from, from Gunther, and it um, certainly gives you pause to, to think and to reconsider where we are today, where we were then, and where we are today. Well, let me add just the next paragraph. The greatest danger to American democracy, now this is in 1947, the yes. greatest danger to American democracy may well reside in that group, most particularly pledged to espouse it, the professional politicians, since it is their own incompetence and ineptitude, if coupled with financial depression, that is most likely to cause a breakdown. Strikes me as being prescient. <laughs> what, what more can you say about it? I mean, as you said, Gunther's writing in, in 1947, uh, 53, it's almost 74 years ago. Um, and those words probably could, they could have been written last year. Um, so it's, well, maybe not last year, but they could have written 10 years ago. They certainly have a familiar ring to them. Can people buy your book if they want to get more on Gunther? Um, it's, I think it's out of print now. It was a, an e-book for a while, but um, it's interesting you mention that because there is some talk of uh, perhaps reissu- reissuing it uh, as, as a title for next year when, um, when it will be the 75th anniversary of Inside USA. So, uh, there may be, uh, but certainly people can go online and uh, find out a lot about Gunther. Uh, and my, my book is available uh, secondhand. You can find it. Um, I wish it was still out there because as I was uh, rereading some of it prior to this, uh, this session, I'd, I'd forgotten uh, a lot of the information about Gunther. And he, as I said, he was, he's somebody really who, um, when you read about his life and times, you read about what he accomplished, and you read about uh, his contemporaries and what they were doing, uh, it really gives you reason to, to stop and think about where we are in the world today and about the whole thing about fragmentation of uh, a society and the breakdown of uh, any kind of consensus in the world. And, and it seems to be a major problem in the United States where the, uh, the very underpinnings of the American democracy are under siege these days. The foundations, if you will, are eroding, and um, it's... Uh, you know, for better, for better or worse, I don't know if you want to talk about this or want me to talk about it, but for better or worse, back in Gunther's day, you know, there was a, a very limited number of uh, people who were controlling, if you will, uh, the information that Americans uh, received and read and that, that influenced them and informed them. Uh, you know, there really there were. Uh, I, this surprised me; I'd forgotten this. That back in the um, in the 30s, there were only about 300 foreign correspondents, American foreign correspondents, and they worked basically for seven of the major newspapers in the United States, and I think there were three different uh, wire services. So these people were uh, basically around the world gathering information and funneling it uh, to Americans back home. And predominantly, the folks who worked uh, as foreign correspondents were white. Uh, they were middle class, people like, like John Gunther. Um, they were reasonably well-educated, but not all un- uh, not university degree-educated by any stretch of the imagination. Predominantly male, predominantly, uh, I guess, Protestant. Uh, you might even say they were wasps. Um, so they had a, 
a very peculiar and particular view of the world. And that really was America's view of the world at the time. And um, it, it's interesting that, that Gunther writes US Inside USA uh, starting in 1944. Uh, America's on the, um, the cusp of the end of, they're just approaching the end of World War II. And, you know, if, if you look at what uh, uh, Donald Trump's uh, campaign slogan was, Make America Great Again, I always wondered up here in my seat in the peanut gallery, uh, looking down and wondering what what exactly did they mean by that? What what era? What time? And what I conclude, because I have a degree in modern American history and have read a fair amount of American history, is that uh, people who want to make America great again are intent on going back to 1945 when America stood at the precipice. Uh, American prosperity, American influence uh, was pervasive, and um, really America ruled the world. And that's the world that John Gunther investigated. Uh, when he, he wrote Inside USA, he'd spent so many years overseas and out of uh, out of the United States that, as he said, he felt like a man from Mars visiting the United States. And, and so that's why the book is uh, Inside USA is still well worth reading, because it has so many insights uh, from somebody who was American, but who has an outsider's perspective to a certain extent. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Here's a couple of little things. I mean, you can go on with this stuff forever. But he yeah, said yeah. in his book, he felt the cleanest city in America was Phoenix. The dirtiest, Indianapolis, where I'm from Indiana originally. That surprised yeah. me. Yeah. The, the ugliest with, intent, with intense, concentrated, degrading ugliness, Knoxville, Tennessee. Yes. Did you hear? I mean, it, didn't we? If you went to those three places now, I don't know that you'd conclude that anymore. I mean, it's been a no, not at all, not at all. Uh, and he certainly, he Gunther didn't win any, didn't win any friends when he when he wrote his book because he he received threats from people and uh, there were you know calls to boycott his book and things. But um, that that was one of the things about Gunther was he, he was from the old school of journalism, although he was a New Deal liberal himself. Um, he was from the old school of journalism that believed in objectivity. So even though uh, you know Gunther's views were, uh, as I mentioned, uh, uh, liberal, he uh, he would always look at both sides of an issue, and he would lay his cards on the table. Uh, he would he would speak the truth as he saw it, and you know people today get very upset when they when they hear that phrase, you know, the truth uh, speaking to the truth and that sort of thing, um, because what is truth? Truth is subjective. But um, I think Gunther was, as I said, from the. Uh, school of journalism that was idolized and uh, canonized uh, the whole notion of obje- uh, objectivity. So he would always uh, tell it what, like it was and let the chips fall where they may. Uh, just some quick background, Stefan, and I'll get back to uh, your opinions on all this. He said is, uh, that he went to all 48 states and he visited all cities greater than 200,000. He also visited yes. some smaller ones. Wrote to all 48 governors in advance. There were only 48 yes. states at the time. Talked with FDR and Truman and some Supreme Court justices. He wrote a million words of notes 
And the interesting thing, and I, I can ask you this, uh, he, he, he really kept referring to men. And then he says at one point, I have to put off to later the role of women. Uh, does, yes. that, does that, uh, you know, track with what people's, the reporters' attitudes were back in those days? Oh, for sure it does, yeah. As I mentioned, the, uh, the 300, if you will, who were foreign correspondents uh, were predominantly male. And even the, you know, in, in the newsrooms of the United States, and here in Canada, too, uh, when you walked in, women were few and far between. My first journalism job um, in the newsroom of, there were probably, what, 50, 50 reporters, uh, there was one woman. And she did, apart from a secretary, a couple of secretaries, but there was one woman reporter. She did the, the social notes, you know, sat in the corner and uh, and drank tea and did the social notes. And that was pretty typical of uh, the journalism world back in in uh, in those days. And, you know, I, I, as I said, I wrote about William L. Shire as well. And he was a member of a group called the, the Murrows Boys. So that tells you, too, pretty well who, who the reporters were for, for CBS Radio News. They were the Murrow Boys. Do you have any idea why Eric Severide, who was originally from Minnesota, uh, would do the eulogy at his funeral in 1970? Oh, because he was he was a great friend of Gunther and respected him so much. Uh, you know, the, the world was the journalistic world in those days was incestuous in many ways. It was it was very uh, even cloistered. The uh, uh, those those three hundred everybody knew everybody. Um, they they traveled uh, along the same paths uh, in in cities when they would come into cities. They would uh, have, have meals and drink at uh, the same restaurants. Uh, they would, uh, and, well, they were, had, a, had a real issue with philandering in those days and, uh, and excess drinking and all the rest of it. And they were, they were drinking buddies. So somebody like Eric Severide uh, would have known John Gunther very well from uh, their travels in Europe. And because they, they were basically part of the same, uh, you could call it almost a fraternity, a journalistic fraternity. And certainly they were, uh, they were good chums. I also noticed, uh, and you, you've said it, that uh, he was from Chicago, uh, Lakeview, up north of Chicago itself, yep. went to yep. the University of Chicago. But I noticed that uh, all of his material, all of his background is all at the University of Chicago. Have you been there? Have you looked through all the material? Oh, yes. Yes, uh, indeed I did. Uh, in fact, I went to look for Gunther's house uh, on the north side of Chicago, and um, um, I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with Chicago, but it, it has certainly has some rough areas. And even on the north side, there's some rough areas. I was driving along in my car, looking at my GPS and, you know, listening, and it told me to turn left here and turn right here and all the rest of it. And I pulled up to, uh, pulled around the corner onto this street that was uh, strewn with rubble. And there were, you know, the, a quintessential uh, scene out of, uh, of a hot day in Chicago with the fire hydrants going and the, the kids, you know, playing in the street, predominantly black kids playing in the street. And I, I pulled along to where Gunther's house had once stood. It was a, rub, a, a, a lot strewn with rubble. Uh, I looked around and I got out of there fairly quickly because people were starting to look at me and wonder who I was. So um, it, it's uh, Chicago is a, is a very changed city. I, I love Chicago. It's one of my favorite cities uh, in, on, on this earth. Um, and I did go there and I spent uh, about three weeks uh, working out uh, through the materials at the University of Chicago, the Regenstein Library, and uh, interviewed a lot of uh, Gunther's uh, family members who were still in the Midwest. And I spent a lot of time in New York um, visiting with uh, Jane Gunther, uh, who was um, John Gunther's uh, second wife, his widow. Um, so I, I, I did my homework on the book, and I marvel at, uh, to a certain extent, at how much uh, I did. I think I, it was a bit of Gunther had rubbed off on me. I had far more material than I could ever use.
Who published it, by the way? The publisher was a company called Bonus Books out of Chicago. Um, and uh, they're a regional, a regional publisher in the Midwest. The book did very well, actually. Uh, I, I, it wasn't a bestseller. It sold, I think, eight or 9,000 copies. And it sold some copies here in Canada where uh, it actually got uh, shortlisted for the Governor General's Literary Awards, which is the top, Canada's top literary prize. But then, of course, um, because, as I said, people don't know who Gunther is, the book kind of just disappeared after uh, a few years. And uh, um, I look back on it now and, and think that's a pity because... Gunther is somebody who, um, and his era is, is something that we should know more about. I'm, we should remember. I'm going to go back. I have the Inside USA with me, and I'm going to read a little bit more. Where he is in Mississippi, and yep. some people will remember names like Eastland, who was a senator from Mississippi, and others will remember Bilbo, who. Um, yep. <clears throat> um, but anyway, let me just read this. He says, uh, he's talking about the Magnolia State, and he says, About Rankin, Eastland, and the unspeakable Bilbo, I shall write elsewhere. What else should one say about Mississippi? Plenty. It is as notorious, uh, the state with the most damaging statistic. Its per capita income is incontestably the lowest in the Union. One Southerner, Mississippi-born, told me ruefully that it would be a splendid thing for the nation at large if this state should be expelled from the country because then all American statistics and culture, literacy, wealth, and so on would jump precipitously. The proud and loyal Mississippians will not thank me for mentioning this, but let them repair some of their home fences first. Pretty tough. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> Again, it, it sounds like something that Hillary... Hillary Clinton's uh, supporter might have said a few years ago. Um, I get, and, you know, unfortunately, those kind of feelings are still um, they're still there in the United States, uh, although I'm not sure anybody would have the, uh, I'm not going to say it's fortitude, but anyone would have the gumption to uh, write something like that today because it was it's certainly inflammatory. Um, I can understand why Gunther uh, wrote it. Um, I, I don't know if you... Um, if you know that in his book, he also talked about segregation in the, in the South, uh, the treatment of black people. And he, he said he had, uh, I can read here a quote, he said he had heard words like discrimination and prejudice all his life, but I had no concrete knowledge, no fingertip realization of what lies behind them. I had heard that segregation was a problem. I had no conception at all of the grim enormousness enormous of that problem. And um, he was he was highly critical of uh, of not only of Mississippi, but of the uh, of segregation in the United States, the poverty that he saw, uh, that people were uh, ill-housed and ill-fed. And um, he really said it was a, a dishonor to what uh, America stood for. And he saw it as a challenge to try and overcome uh, some of those problems. Um, you know, the, the, he says the country was lousy with greatness. That was an expression he used um, and, and had some of the greatest opportunities known to humanity. Uh, it's interesting that he wrote that in, in 1947, 74 years ago. And, you know, I'm not sure many people would agree with that anymore because uh, it, it seems that, uh, um, again, from up up in my cheap seats here in the peanut gallery, that America has kind of lost its way. It's, it's begun to uh, question some of the values that, that Gunther uh, um, praised and glorified and, and touted. Um, so I'm, I'm not I'm not sure how he would feel if he was alive today. What he would what he would have to say about where America is and where the world is today. Here's a paragraph that he he writes in the forward up front as you begin the book. 
Uh, yeah. It touches on a lot of interesting uh, possibilities. And you as a Canadian, uh, I want to ask you what you think. He says the Declaration of Independence does not include the word republic, nor does the Constitution contain the word democracy or even the word nation. Yet the United States is, we like to think, the greatest republic, the greatest democracy, and the greatest nation in the world. It is also one of the few great nations with no national planning agency. The United States is statistically the richest country in the world. It is also a country with no national unemployment or health insurance. Nothing, in fact, could be easier than to list some of our more uh, preposterous and flamboyant contradictions. And he then goes into a long list. But again, this was written in 1947. What's your reaction to that paragraph? Well, (laughs) since you asked me, I'll express an opinion. I... I, uh, I tend not to uh, to get into that with, uh, with friends in the states, uh, although most of my friends in the states uh, are inclined to agree with me that it, it, to me it's incomprehensible that um, the United States doesn't have some, at least some form of uh, national health care. That uh, it seems to be uh, so divided um, over some of the issues relating to private property and rela- particularly related to guns um, and gun ownership. That um, really to to an outsider. Uh, all I can do is scratch my head and and wonder, and you know, um, again, as I, when I was alluding to what Gunther had written uh, about segregation and poverty in the United States in 1947-48, if he were alive today, I'm sure he would still be scratching his head and be as bewildered as uh, uh, as people, uh, most people, are outside the United States when we when we look at uh, what's happening in your country and um, basically. Uh, it pains me, and as somebody who, uh, you know, I live within uh, within about 20 miles of the border, uh, as I said, have lots of friends in the United States, uh, travel there extensively, uh, know New York better than I know Toronto, um, have, I've traveled to uh, all parts of the United States, and I grew up in a world that where the United States was, uh, to use, I guess, the phrase that Ronald Reagan talked about, you know, shining beacon on the hill. Uh, where it provided stability and um, and and some sense of, of permanence in the world, and, and really was, despite all its its flaws and and uh, foibles, it was uh, a force for good in the world. And now I look and I, I just wonder uh, where the United States is going. It seems to be a very confused country. And I, as I said, I don't want to criticize because uh, it's not my right to not my place to do that. But uh, as a foreign observer, I, I certainly wonder uh, about the direction the country is headed in and. Uh, it brings a tears to my eyes sometimes when I see what's happening, uh, uh, particularly in Washington, where there there seems to be no end to the, uh, the political gridlock, and there seems to be no interest in talking across the aisle to resolve some of the issues that are bedeviling everyone. Of all the books he wrote, I know he had a couple novels in there. Which book did you like the most? Inside Europe, without question. <clears throat> it was his. Uh, it was his first book, and it really. Um, it, it really. Uh, I guess it, it goes to the heart of, of what made Gunther such an extraordinary journalist um, and, and, and a person. He, um, he was offered th- that book only when H.R. Uh, Knickerbocker, who's good friend, uh, his good friend, turned it down uh, because Cass Canfield, uh, the publisher at Harper, uh, Harper and Row in those days, a very influential man, um, had seen a book that came out, uh, I think, in 1932, and it was called Washington Merry-Go-Round, and it was a uh, by a couple of syndicated columnists based in Washington, Drew Pearson and Robert Allen. And basically what it was was um, inside gossip from Capitol Hill. <clears throat> it was very uh, people-focused, and that was kind of something new for its time. Um, 
this is uh, kind of the um, one of the aspects of Gunther that uh, that is important, I think, and that it's kind of overlooked, is that he was um, he was uh, one of the first journalists who kind of changed the focus of journalism. He he um, started telling telling the stories behind the scenes, uh, uh, the behind the scenes gossip and whatnot that uh, had always been sort of off limits for journalists. Uh, if you look back at um, the history of American journalism, you see things like FDR, for example, in his wheelchair. Journalists didn't write about that. Um, Eisenhower, when he was uh, when he was overseas and for, for much of his career, had uh, a mistress, and that was that wasn't the sort of stuff that uh, appeared in print. JFK uh, had mistresses and uh, had no ends of, of dalliances when he was in the White House. Journalists didn't write about that, but but Gunther was one of the first to kind of dig behind uh, the scenes and to start writing things. And that's what he did with his book, Inside Europe. He was he was offered the book in 1934, declined to do it. Uh, 32, sorry, and, and he declined to do it. And um, eventually when he did decide to do it, he, he did it because he needed the money. That was the main reason that he wrote the book. But what he did was he, he traveled around, talked to foreign correspondents he knew, uh, and as I, as I mentioned, these foreign correspondents uh, traveled in the same circles. They all knew one another. They shared information. And they gave Gunther information that he might not have had otherwise. He put it all together, and he wrote this book, Inside Europe, which was really the first book to look at the rise of the dictators in in, um, in Europe. And he, he actually went to, he had gone to Adolf Hitler's hometown to look uh, at Hitler's history, to find out who he was. Uh, he interviewed uh, the midwife who had uh, who had uh, given birth, or had been there to deliver uh, Hitler. And he wrote some very unflattering things about Hitler. And that kind of earned him the enmity of, of uh, the Nazis. But when when the book Inside Europe came out, it was full of this sort of in, really inside information that people hadn't heard before, and that's what made it so so popular, and that's what made the inside books so popular, because Gunther had this way of taking a vast amount of information, digesting it, and putting it on paper in a form that made sense to the kind of people who uh, he was appealing to, and those were upwardly mobile people who were um, becoming self-educated to a great extent, um, and the kind of people who read Reader's Digest, and he had a good relationship with Reader's Digest, but that was his, his uh, um, the book that made him was Inside um, Europe, and really that's the book that I think uh, is my favorite among the books that he wrote. And that was his first? That was his, well, no, it, was, it wasn't his, it was his first... Um, Inside book? First nonfiction. There was a book that he had, had worked on, something about the Habsburgs in 19, a couple of years earlier, but not, it wasn't really his book, but Inside Europe was his first nonfiction book. And uh, the whole notion of inside um, was the theme that he seized on, because initially he'd, he'd come up with all these different titles for the books. He was going to call it uh, uh, Europe and the Dictators, and he, um, there was something else about Europe. Uh, and then he, he decided that the word inside really encapsulated what he was trying to do. And he hit upon it for that book, and it worked so well that he wrote uh, all of the other inside books, um, one after the other, and basically up till 1970 when he died. The last book in his series was Inside Australia, which uh, he was working on when he died, and it was completed by another author. I want to go back to a book that we haven't talked about. And before I get there, though, I want to ask you about his second wife, who you talked to, Jane. Uh, how, yes. Is she still alive by any chance? No, I'm not. sadly she died uh, years, I think last year. She was uh, 102 or 103. W what did a charming you, lady. Uh, 
Yeah. What Frank? What did you personally learn from her? Well, she gave me complete access to uh, to, to John Gunther's uh, papers, that the ones that she still had at the house, um, and uh, gave me uh, access as well to his file cabinet. So I got to see the way he worked. And, you know, nowadays on a computer, I, I got to be honest with you and tell you, I can't write anymore unless I have a computer in front of me. Some people still write longhand, uh, and some people, you know, use typewriters. Not many, but some people do. Gunther typed everything, of course. And then the way he organized his material was... He laid it out on the floor, all the pages, and he would take scissors, cut the pages up, and he would reassemble the pieces like a giant jigsaw puzzle, paste them together, and that was his methodology for working. So I was able, Mrs. Gunther gave me uh, the opportunity to, to uh, rummage through Gunther's papers and to see um, how he worked. And she also, um, because being in the house where he had lived uh, for so many years, uh, their apartment on East End Avenue in New York, I was able to get a flavor of... Um, um, of how he lived his life, and you know, Mrs. Gunther had, uh, in still, still had there uh, a copy of their guest book, because the Gunthers loved to entertain, and John Gunther was gregarious and uh, personable and, and generous to a fault, and they routinely had dinner parties, very lavish dinner parties, where all of the guests would uh, would sign the guest book, and if you looked there, you would see the names of people like uh, Greta Garbo or the Duke and Duchess of uh, Windsor, or there'd, there'd be, you know. Uh, Cary Grant, or people people from Hollywood, people from royalty from uh, from Europe. So I, I I got to I got some sense of of who Gunther was as a person. He was, as I said, he was uh, he died in 1970, so I never got the opportunity to meet him. Um, and I did get, William L. Shire, who I wrote about as well, was a good friend of of Gunther, and that was uh, I was able to talk to him about it. And Emily Hahn, as well, I started doing I wrote my Emily Hahn book because of uh, research I had done on my Gunther book. Uh, Gunther went to Europe from Chicago because he was jilted by Emily Hahn's older sister, one of her older sisters, Helen Hahn, who um, was a crossword puzzle editor, of all things. Uh, and Gunther was um, uh, was hot on her, but uh, Helen uh, told him to get lost. So he, in, in uh, a fit of pique, said, well, I'm going to, going to go to Europe, become a foreign correspondent, and a somebody, and you'll see who you've lost out on. So, um, who, who was Emily Hahn, by the way? Emily Hahn? Emily Hahn was a St. Louis-born... Uh, raised in Chicago, uh, and you'll have to read my book, which was, uh, uh, anyway, it's, I, I won't go into that. But um, Emily Hahn was, became a writer for The New Yorker. She was there for 69 years as a, uh, as a staff writer, um, a world traveler, an environmentalist, a feminist before there was uh, such a thing as a feminist, lived in the Belgian Congo with uh, pygmies during the 1930s, traveled to, uh, to China where she became uh, the concubine of a Chinese poet, uh, became uh, an intimate friend of uh, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, uh, went to Hong Kong uh, just prior to the outbreak of war and had a fling with uh, the head of British military intelligence, had a child by him stayed there through the occupation, or at least part of the occupation, was able to work for the Chinese underground, came back to uh, the United States, and, and lived a, a very eventful life uh, for all those years. Where did you go to school, and where did you work most of your life? Um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I, I grew up in, in Kingston, Ontario, where I live now. Uh, went to uh, the university here, Queen's University. Then I went did a degree in modern American history. Um, then I went away to, uh, to journalism school at Western University, which is in the other end of the province down near Detroit. Uh, and then I worked in uh, journalism for about seven years before I went back to uh, law school. Uh, got, my, uh, got my license to practice law, decided that I didn't want to be spend my life uh, 
fighting over pots and pans, uh, working at divorce settlements, defending drunks in court who uh, probably should go to, to jail rather than being uh, being let off and to go home. And so I went back to journalism where I uh, got a job as an editor of a university magazine here in, in Kingston, uh, where I lasted for 28 years before I got fed up with it and decided that I should go and do what I wanted to do all my life, which was to write books. And uh, I've written uh, six books since, uh, since I retired. What is the, the name Cuthbertson? Where does it come from? Uh, Scottish Lowlands. I, um, an interesting history. Uh, uh, I don't know the, the full history, but basically uh, my, I ended up in, in this country only because my grandfather, who was a slater, uh, somebody who fixed roofs in, uh, roofs in um, Glasgow, Scotland, fell off the roof, um, was unable to work, and uh, got sick. And his wife, uh, who was Irish, crawled inside a bottle and, and never came out. So the six kids all ended up in an orphanage. And they came over to Canada, shipped over, basically, uh, as indentured labor. They came over here as British home children. There's a whole history of, of that uh, where uh, they cleaned out the orphanages of uh, the U.K. and shipped all the kids off to Canada, um, Australia, South Africa. Some went to the States, but not as many as, not nearly as many as came to Canada. And that's where my uh, grandfather was, was shipped over to, to Canada. I'm going to go back to the Inside USA. This is very personal yeah. uh, because I've never seen anybody in my life describe something that I knew to be true because I grew up in a family that had some business in the liquor and beer business. But yeah. he describes on page 388 a situation in Indiana that I don't it's part of it still exists, but I'm going to read it. And and uh, this is how much detail he goes into in this book. It says the chief local lobbies are liquor and insurance, talking about Indiana. There is no civil service in Indiana. This is in the old days, 47, which means a virtually clean sweep of office holders with every new administration. The most lucrative profits are in the liquor business. A wholesaler must have a state license. This will not come easily unless the county chairman nods approval and passes the word along. In fact, licenses simply are not issued unless the guy is right. Those are in quotes. Hence, the big wholesalers who know their way around make contributions to both political parties as a rule. Once they are in, they are set for four years at least. But to keep on being in, they must cooperate, and a wholesaler who does not uh, do so simply does not do so may simply have to get out of the business when the administration changes. And I can tell you that is every word of that is exactly the way it was. And what makes it uh, all the more uh, interesting and revelatory is that uh, the system seems to be writ large today. Uh, as I said, I don't uh, perhaps shouldn't shouldn't criticize what goes on in Washington, being uh, not an American citizen. But uh, it certainly seems to me that uh, what Gunther was writing about in Indiana has been writ large, and is the reality, uh, unfortunately, in in Washington, just as it is here. Uh, you know, to to uh, to look uh, in my own backyard in Ottawa, where lobbyists, special interest groups, uh, moneyed interests, really uh, have, hold sway over a lot of what happens. Uh, in the legislature, and it's uh, uh, it's certainly not a healthy situation. Here's another uh, brief paragraph. He says, The splitting asunder of the world between left and right, which is the result both of rev- revolutionary forces and of complacency and greed, has not, we should now point out with emphasis, produced in the United States anything like the gap that divides much of Asia and Europe. What about that one? 
Well, left, right, uh, you know, in the United States, I'm not sure what left and right are because, uh, as you know, your political parties, you'll have uh, left-wing Democrats, right-wing Democrats. Uh, I'm not sure you have any left-wing Republicans left, but uh, certainly the meanings uh, left and right in most of the world don't don't really apply in the United States. It, it uh, It's a source of endless puzzlement to me uh, as a Canadian um, and as an external observer when I listen to uh, people in the United States, commentators, particularly if you listen to Fox, they're they're always ranting about um, the left and communism and socialism. And I always scratch my head and think, really, is it is really that is that communism? Is that socialism? Because it, it seems to me that these just have become buzzwords without any real sense of context or meaning. Left, right, I'm not sure what they mean anymore. Uh, there's this whole thing about uh, being woke is the latest term that's being thrown around indiscriminately. Uh, it used to be left, right, and, and now it's woke. So uh, in the United States, I'm just not sure what the political divide is. I think it's more a case of, of um, people hear these buzzwords, uh, get themselves worked up, and then refuse to even think about what the other side is saying. And it, it's, Again, that's another situation that's not healthy for anyone. You know, we could go on forever because this book is big. He's written so many books, and um, you only have so much time in your day. And we really appreciate you uh, helping us better understand John Gunther. Uh, it's as as uh, we originally started with this. Bob Gottlieb wrote that we're about, I guess, next year, and to celebrate the the seventy fifth yeah, anniversary an of the book. Uh, you read it, I assume. Oh yes, yes. Um, one thing I wanted to mention about the Gottlieb piece was he talks there about uh, Gunther's deeply fulfilling career. And that was one of the, the sub-themes of, of my book, was that Gunther had a very successful career commercially, but his personal life certainly was not not happy by any stretch of the imagination. He was a, he was a frustrated novelist, and his personal life was, uh, was um, in constant turmoil. His first wife, Frances Feynman... Um, who um, some people said he helped him write his books, uh, and she may have helped him to do some research, but she certainly didn't um, write, it, write his books for him or even help write the books. But uh, she certainly gave made his life miserable, and then he found happiness with, with, uh, with his second wife. But, you know, as he was writing Inside USA, um, that whole time his son, his only uh, son, biological son, Johnny, was um, ailing with brain cancer. And he died shortly before the book was published. So John was was working on this magnum opus, this 900-page book, Inside USA, uh, at the same time that his son was dying, and they were doing everything that they could humanly do or possibly do, including you know consulting experts, medical experts around the world, to try and find some way to cure Johnny or at least to, to prolong his life, and they, they couldn't. Uh, and that was you know, both of Gunther's children had died. His daughter, a uh, daughter, Judith, died in Paris in 1928, crib death, and then Johnny died in, in 1947. Gunther, um, a failed novelist, and that bothered him uh, all his life. So, you know, when, when Gottlieb says that he had a deeply fulfilling career, he did in one sense, uh, at least commercial with his inside books, but in other ways, uh, he was a, a very, uh, his, his life was tragic in, in some ways. The those listening ought to know that they, the Gottlieb piece is June twenty sixth, I believe, of uh, yes. this year. And well worth reading. Well worth reading. And but your book is called Inside uh, the Biography of John Gunther, and uh, that was uh, first published in May first of nineteen ninety two. And I saw on Amazon. I think you can buy one for twenty nine forty. Uh, it's four hundred and fifty one pages. 
correct me if any of this is wrong. Uh, and they the book, 1947 book, Inside USA, you can pick it up for a small $890 if you're interested. And uh, <laughs> Buy two at that price. I know uh, Bob Gottlieb said, let's, you know, they ought to reprint that book. Do you, do you hear anything of that, that they're going to possibly reprint the book somewhere? Well, I'm, I'm hoping, actually. I've talked to my agent about uh, going to Harper and Row. My publisher is Harper Collins, so I'm hoping that, that maybe maybe my agent can rattle the, the cage and, and convince them to republish, uh, reprint Inside USA, and maybe, maybe my book as well. That would be nice. I'd like that. Thank you so much for your time and uh, filling us in on John Gunther. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I could talk, I could talk forever about this subject. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.